Welcome to Managed Carecast, a podcast from the American Journal of Managed Care. My name is Laura Jost, Vice President of Content for the American Journal of Managed Care, and today we're bringing you something a little different with part one of a two-part podcast series on interstitial lung disease, or ILD. Today we'll highlight a discussion with a panel of experts in ILD moderated by Dr. Ryan Humschild, Director of Pharmacy Services at Emory Healthcare and Winship Cancer Institute. Our expert panel includes Dr. Daniel Culver, Chair of the Department of Pulmonary Medicine at Cleveland Clinic, Dr. Kristen Highland, Director of the Rheumatic Lung Disease Program at Cleveland Clinic, and Dr. Paul Noble, Vera and Paul Gurin Family Distinguished Chair in Pulmonary Medicine at Cedars-Sinai Medical Center. The topics of conversation for today's podcast include treatment goals in patients with ILD and a review of treatment paradigms and standard of care therapies. Now I'd like to transition to the speak more about the treatment and management. I know we've touched on this a little bit in the background of the disease, but I think it's important for us to discuss the treatment paradigms and what are the standard of care therapies for interstitial lung disease. And so I want to start off with Dr. Noble. If you could chime in on, you know, what are the goals of treatment for idiopathic pulmonary fibrosis, progressive fibrosine, interstitial lung disease, and systemic sclerotic interstitial lung disease? What are the goals of treatment that you're looking for? And what are you treating those patients with if you could get us started? Yeah, sure. Uh, my pleasure. Um, my goal is always uh, to prevent my patient, uh, you know, from dying or needing a lung transplant. That's why I say I'm kind of losing the game when that happens. So up front, what's really key is, is making the decision. Do you think this is, is this lung disease uh, part of a systemic process or is this, or is this really just the lung that's involved? and distinguishing chronic HP and chronic and uh, connective tissue disease related fibrosing lung disease from IPF is really essential because um, you know, if, it, if it's one of the former, you're gonna wanna treat the underlying cause. And what that means is getting rid of an inciting agent, uh, but, but more importantly, it means targeting the immune system. We believe both of these are, both chronic HP and, and CTD-related ILD are autoimmune-like, autoimmune you know, immune-driven processes. So steroids and a steroid-sparing agent, uh, my favorite one is mycophenolate. Um, we can oftentimes um, prevent progression, and sometimes, not as often as we'd like, we can see improvement, major improvement, and patients can be in quote-unquote remission for, for many years. I've had patients that I've followed for upwards of 20 years who've had a stable connective tissue disease and never gone on to need a lung transplant. So that's really, really critical, and that's one of my, my biggest concerns of community practitioners where, um, you know, certainly with the progressive phenotype, the argument, you know, from some of the pharmaceutical companies is we'll just put everybody in on antifibrotic. And my concern with that is if you miss the underlying cause, you're, you're not going to, you're not going to, you're, you're, uh, you know, keeping that patient from the opportunity of getting better because the antifibrotics, they, they don't make you better. They slow the loss of lung function, but nobody, um, you know, really gets, gets better in that sense. Um, so early diagnosis, determining whether you're going to target the immune system. Uh, and then if you do think it's IPF, um, you know, it is important then to consider an antifibrotic. Uh, it's a really interesting conversation, particularly in early stages of the disease, because as we'll, I'm sure, talk about their tolerability issues with these medications. 
but I had the good fortune, you know, to be involved with both Nintendo and Profenadone from the very beginning for the IPF trials. Um, and it's, you know, it's very clear that they slow the loss of lung function. When you look at goals of treatment, I think you explained it well, you really want to manage the patient. You want to decrease inflammation, prevent any of the formation or the progression of lung scarring, um, and also try to remove the source of the problem. And I think that's another thing you worked out, that differential diagnosis of what is the true source and how can we improve the quality of life for the patient? How do we uh, minimize or manage any potential complications of disease progression? Uh, and then lastly, we want to decrease that deterioration of a patient's quality of life, because we know when patients have better quality of life, they function, they have higher motivation for therapy. And I think Dr. Highland really hit on that um, in our previous conversation. Next, the panel provides an overview of the treatment landscape for idiopathic pulmonary fibrosis and progressing fibrosing ILD. I do want to dive deeper into the um, overview of treatment landscape uh, for um, in, uh, idiopathic pulmonary fibrosis, and then we'll move on to progressive uh, fibrosing ILD, and then lastly, systemic sclerosis. But um, Dr. Culver, you were hitting on it before, but when we think about um, idiopathic pulmonary fibrosis, can you talk us through what are the treatments for this agent? Um, what is some of that efficacy that you're considering when you're deciding between uh, four patients, and what are the FDA-approved treatment options for those patients? Sure, thank you. Idiopathic pulmonary fibrosis is generally inexorable. It is only somewhat predictable. And so when we diagnose somebody with idiopathic pulmonary fibrosis, uh, the first part of it is a discussion with the patient about, as Paul said, the goals of therapy, what we can expect, and how we can ameliorate that. And we're really looking at improving survival preventing patients from death or lung transplant, but also maintaining functional capacity and quality of life. And those are very important goals that are often uh, aligned, but sometimes not. And so untangling those pieces with the patient is a really important part of a patient-centered discussion. As we think about the treatment of idiopathic pulmonary fibrosis, Assuming that we have the right diagnosis and we're not dealing with occult HP or something else, I really focus on issues around uh, comorbid diseases or considerations that can help accelerate the disease. And some of those include things like uh, gastroesophageal reflux, exposures to dusts and tobacco, for example. Uh, sleep apnea is very common and that, that has some ramifications on patients with IPF and there are some others. So comorbid disease is important. And then also uh, management of the fibrotic process. As you mentioned, there are two FDA approved medications uh, uh, that both attenuate the decline in, in, the, fibro in, the, in the lung function. Uh, very roughly, and this is extremely rough, we can get into the nuances, but they both attenuate the decline on average uh, by about 50%. And the effect size is probably roughly similar. This is just looking at the forced vital capacity, which is probably still considered the single best surrogate endpoint. It's controversial. There's plenty of debate about the benefits of the FVC. But I think if you're going to, to, to put your money down on one thing, the FVC right now is still uh, the single marker that we use uh, as a, a surrogate endpoint for clinical trials. 
when we're managing patients, we look at much more than the FVC. We look at things like the six minute walk or the level of desaturation, as Paul mentioned, the functional capacity, how short of breath are people, uh, gas transfer measured by things like the diffusing capacity. Uh, in some centers, uh, there's serial imaging that's looked at. And so all of these are markers that we look at after we start the antifibrotics or in somebody who are monitoring without antifibrotics in order to determine whether or not we're achieving our, our goals or not. And so generally, uh, when a patient's diagnosed with IPF, I have a discussion with them about the antifibrotics. My personal philosophy is, you know, why give up any territory? I don't, I don't think it makes a lot of sense to me if I have a clear-cut diagnosis of IPF and the patient's feeling aggressive like that. I, I don't know that there's a good reason to wait and in fact, there are some data suggesting that these drugs are just as effective for patients with mild or early disease. And then we have a discussion about the two agents. And, and frankly, uh, a lot of it comes down to uh, patients' uh, uh, aversion or appetite for the various side effect profiles uh, and some of the comorbidities the patient has. But I don't think that today we can say convincingly that one of the two agents is head and shoulders ahead of the other one in terms of efficacy. That's a great background. And before we transition uh, back to Dr. Noble, one more question for you, Dr. Culver. Uh, any other agents that you utilize for a lot of these pulmonary patients? How about for pulmonary hypertension? Is there any unique treatments we want to consider in that area as well for these patients? Yeah, pulmonary hypertension is a really uh, important and common uh, sequela uh, of pulmonary fibrosis. And it can happen on different mechanisms according to the underlying interstitial lung disease. Some of it's just obliteration of the vascular bed. There's some emerging biology suggesting there are relationships between the endothelium and the, and the fibrotic process. Uh, and then of course, uh, uh, some of the interstitial lung diseases have a primary vasculopathy. And, and I think it's like bringing Coles to Newcastle to speak about this in front of Dr. Highland. So I think I'm going to defer to her for more nuances, but I will say that there probably is a place for some for some patients with IPF, and certainly for patients with some of the other interstitial lung diseases uh, for co-management with pulmonary uh, vasodilators and other agents that target the vasculature. Currently, we only have one FDA-approved therapy for pulmonary hypertension in the setting of interstitial lung disease, and that's inhaled terpostanol. Um, treating pulmonary hypertension in the setting of ILD um, requires a significant degree of expertise. Using other agents can potentially worsen VQ um, matching and make patients worse and more hypoxemic. And some of our dr drugs have been that we use for pulmonary arterial hypertension. Um, some of those drug studies actually were negative or terminated early for adverse um, events. And so treating pulmonary hypertension in the setting of interstitial lung disease needs to be done very carefully. But we do have our first little bit of hope with um, improvement in um, six-minute walk test in patients with interstitial lung disease and pulmonary hypertension. And in addition, in that study, the increased study um, that also showed that NT-proBNP improved, which is a marker of um, ventricular dysfunction. And um, there was decreased time to clinical worsening. And interestingly, 
um, there seemed to be some improvement in forced vital capacity, which um, goes along with what Dr. Culver said that there is, you know, a connection between our vasculature and fibrotic processes. So it, it is important that um, we, we think about pulmonary hypertension um, in patients with interstitial lung disease. We know that patients with PH and ILD have, have um, increased risk of um, acute exacerbations and, and significant worse um, mortality than just having ILD alone. Um, and that we have, have access um, to being able to use inhaled troposinol in this group of patients. I like that little bit of hope. And I think what you reminded me of is why it is so complex managing these patients and why a pulmonologist really does need to be brought in, especially when we're using combination treatment. Um, and, and I want to I want to circle back to you, Dr. Highland, because I think I want to reach out to you a little bit more about some of these questions around systemic sclerosis. But before we get there, uh, Dr. Noble, I would like to hear from you, uh, really, when we're speaking about progressive fibrosine interstitial lung disease. Uh, we heard from Dr. Culver comparing and contrasting with IPF but I'm curious for you for progressing, what are some of the therapies you go to for treatment? How do they compare against each other in terms of efficacy and safety? And uh, what, what is your preference in terms of first line or second line treatment um, in the progressing fibrosis interstitial lung disease patient population? Right, so the, you know, the real, uh, the, the only FDA approved uh, therapy is an intentative in, in that circumstance. And that and the study that led to uh, that approval, uh, you know, was very interesting. It, it sort of reflects our clinical practice in the sense when you looked at the patients that were enrolled, they all had evidence of disease progression, either by lung function or imaging or both. Um, and it was really a breakdown of, of the kind of the, the, what we've been talking about in terms of the differential diagnosis. So once you've started to progress, I like to use the analogy is that, you know, chronic HP, a third of the patients or rheumatoid arthritis, they can behave clinically like IPF, meaning it's this inexorable progression despite, uh, you know, immunosuppressive therapy. So typically in those circumstances, um, you know, we would, um, we would move towards, uh, you know, nintenitib in that sen in that in that scenario. Um, whether to stop the underlying immunosuppression, uh, you know, is a is a case by case um, point. The, the one piece of data that I liked was actually from the scleroderma study. When you looked at the subset of patients who were on mycophenolate and nintenitib, their loss of lung function was less than patients that were on nintenitib alone, suggesting that idea of still targeting the underlying disease process with some type of immunosuppression, you know, with an antifibrotic, you know, on board, um, you know, is, is, uh, is reasonable. I think the one thing, though, that I will be honest and say, I was disappointed in, and I, and despite being sort of a real advocate a decade ago for forced vital capacity as the primary endpoint, um, I was disappointed that there was a large difference in the progressive uh, fibrotic trial between the large FVC difference between placebo and patients on intensive, yet there was really no evidence any other endpoints were impacted quality of life. And I, and it really be, gave me some pause. Uh, what are, you know, is losing less really enough? And I must admit, I recently, I've become a little bit more concerned that this bar of just showing a p-value of an FVC difference when everybody's getting worse 
you know, is that really kind of rearranging the deck chairs? I don't want to get ahead of myself, but my patients still die from IPF or get lung transplant. Ten years ago, they died from IPF or got lung transplant. So without an improvement in FVC, um, I'm really beginning to wonder, particularly because the next wave is all about trying to find a drug that does a similar benefit in terms of losing less, but better tolerate. And to me that we need a higher bar, higher aspiration. If you look at cystic fibrosis, you know, those FEV1 changes weren't huge, but they were in a positive direction. And from what I understand, I don't do CF, but my colleagues around the country have said that the, the number of lung transplants for CF has dropped dramatically. That's really what our goal needs to be. So while I, I do believe that these, these therapies are and advance. I think we can't lose sight of the goal of still trying to see if we can get people better. Oh, I agree with you. Um, we need to do better. And I, I, I think that uh, I look at this a little bit analogous to pulmonary vascular disease 15 years ago. And when we talked about you're just shifting the time to the six minute walk deterioration and big deal, what are you doing? And, and we clearly have a long way to go. As you mentioned, the, the decline in FVC doesn't go to zero with these drugs. It just slows down. And, and that's an average, right? There are plenty of patients who don't even seem to pay attention to being on the drug. They just keep going. But I, I do think that I see more patients that have what I call boring visits, where we get to talk about their grandchildren's little league game instead of their, uh, their problems, because uh, they're just about the same as they were. So I think some of the registry data suggests there may be some shifts in the natural history a little bit, a long way to go, as you said. And I think the point that you made about non-IPF ILD is really important. Even though you decrease the decline of FVC on average, uh, the, in general, those diseases tend to progress less aggressively than IPF. And so uh, you're hitting us a little bit wouldn't call it a ceiling effect, but your opportunity for improvement is not quite the same. And so reducing the change in FVC by a few dozen milliliters a year, I also wonder, you know, what are you really accomplishing with that? That's all we have for today. From all of us at AJMC, thank you for listening to this Managed Carecast. Please tune in to the next podcast in this series, where we will discuss the systemic sclerosis-associated ILD treatment landscape, and the future of ILD treatment. For more updates in managed care, be sure to visit AJMC.com and sign up for our e-newsletter. To get in touch with us, you can email info at AJMC.com or follow us on Twitter at AJMC underscore journal. And if you like the podcast, don't forget to subscribe and rate us. Thanks again for listening.